Welcome back to Martins and More. My name is Mari Rutsch. And I'm Spoon Phillips. And we have some very important things to talk about. How are you doing today, Spoon? I am doing excellent. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well, and we have a very interesting show today. I did reach out to our friends on YouTube, and one of our loyal listeners named T said, Hey, why don't you talk about your musical influences? Today's show brought to you by T. Well, that's very interesting. And is that is that an anonymous like a initial T or is it T E E T E A? It is T E E A E E A A E underscore E. Right. <laughs> I don't know. It's the letter T. <laughs> now, now uh, we have influences. So I'm assuming they're speaking. Uh, they're speaking broadly or perhaps speaking in terms of Martin, since this show is Martin's and more. So maybe we should do Martin's and more. So we could talk about if it's, uh, if it's okay with you, our musical influences in terms of being a guitar player, but also in terms of the influencers that uh, have informed our musical tastes and guitar playing that played Martin's. What do you think? When I first met you back in 2002, you told me explicitly that you're my only influence and I'm not allowed to have any others. So my part of this show is going to be short. You're the only <laughs> one who influences me musically. I have not looked in any other direction. So take it away. Aww. Um, <laughs> what a nice guy. Even he's, <laughs> even if he is the biggest liar, I know. Um, but um, I do know, I've known Mari for... Uh, since the very first Martin Fest, and and really online before that, because the uh, UMGF had been around for a year or so, two years before, would you say, before the first event in Nazareth that went on to be called Martin Fest? Probably a little bit shy of two years. Basically, since the beginning of this century, and so I've learned that uh, Mari and I actually share a lot of uh, favorite acts, music, musicians, songwriters, uh, bands. And so I'm going to start with, uh, with one that is, uh, that we both share and that's Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. So when did you get introduced to them? When did you kind of, uh, drink that Kool-Aid and turn on to those guys? Probably the early 90s, and if I were to jump way into the middle of this story and go out of order a couple times, I had the extreme pleasure of getting to meet Graham Nash at Penn's Peak a couple years ago. Uh, Dick Boak introduced us backstage, and I, I said to him, you know, I, I just discovered your music in 1991, and he looked at me and he said, where the f*** were you? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm sure he talks like that to all of his all of his adoring fans, and we got a good laugh out of everybody, you know. He, take into account your age for one thing but um <laughs> but uh that's pretty funny and yes he is you know for being quite the english gentleman uh he definitely enjoys salty language that's for certain um <laughs> and always has actually but uh, they just weren't allowed to say those things on tv back when he was in the hollies so that yeah that's fascinating too because for me it was it was much earlier, and though we might have been, I don't know if we'd be a similar age or not, but I remember as a little boy, actually, uh, a kid asking somebody, what kind of guitars did Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young play? I had grown up basically exclusively listening to Bob Dylan and the Beatles, 
and having an older brother and sister. And I mean, on my little plastic record player at night, I would be listening to the Magical Mystery Tour, you know, that, and that sort of thing, or really Bob Dylan's first three albums, four albums, before he like went electric. But anyway, I asked them, and the person told me Gibson's. And so I just assumed they played Gibson guitars. I had no idea until years later that that person probably was talking, either didn't know what they were talking about or they were talking about electric guitars. Because at the time I had asked this, Neil Young had already moved on to playing Les Paul, Gibson Les Paul, and Stephen Stills was playing Gibson Firebird during the years, in, in, the, in those years in the 70s. So, you know, but I didn't pay any attention to what kind of guitars those kind of uh, people played in general. It was, it was the music, but the music informed me and formed my brain around what is a, uh, what's a, what's the classic sound of a steel string acoustic guitar? And in the case of Crossfields, Nash and Young, with some exceptions around uh, Graham Nash, it's Martin's in the sound of a Martin guitar. So yeah, and of them, I was a big Neil Young fan. Uh, he influenced me a lot in my youth, and so did David Crosby. And David Crosby, I would say, if you could, if you had to pick a favorite songwriter, it, was, it would be David Crosby. He's always been, uh, I've always loved the songs that he's written, particularly back then in his youth, you know, genius of youth of a lot of those songwriters uh, would say. So that's interesting. Now, what were, what were your CSNY albums or, you know, what was it that you focused in on that really hooked you about them? Any particular songs, for example? If I'm remembering right, and this, if this is going back to college, so don't, you know, don't crucify me if my memory's not completely perfect. I really listened to it out of order. I think the very first memory I have of hearing what Crosby, Stills, and Nash sound like, and I did deliberately leave the word young off of that. Uh, one of my friends from Philadelphia who went to a different school, his school was near my apartment. Kyle turned me on to Southern Cross. So you guys might think, well, you, you, you started at the top of the mountain and then found everything else about them later. One of their most, at least popular songs that I would still say, you know, to date, back then it was, it was probably the newer CSN because it was, of course, you know, 82, 83, and, and, and that stuff started long before the 70s. I probably found that song, immediately went back and bought that whole album, the CSN album. Right after that, I'm sure I found Deja Vu. And I think out of order, I, I discovered the uh, the first record with Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Uh, matter of fact, my, my only gripe, and if, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, uh, every member of CSNY, I've never been so unhappy to go to a record store. I went to a record store to buy the cassette, so we're, we're dating ourselves, and I bought Four Way Street so I could hear just the end of Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. I still don't know how they got away with that, where they list the tracks on the back of the album, and you start playing Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, and they're done. They're finishing the song. But my in order, I probably bought CSN, Deja Vu, and then the first album. But Four Way Street pissed me off. Well... Absolutely, I think that you, there's got to be legions of people who felt that way, felt that way, and I I suspect it was either what you said it was a trick by Atco for Atlantic Recording Corporation, uh, Atlantic Corporation, or it was uh, something to do with um, with royalties and contractual stuff, and Stephen Stills wanted it listed on there so he would get paid royalties to uh, every time somebody bought the album for that song. That's a, just a guess, but I wouldn't be surprised if his agent didn't insist or manager insist on that. 
but yes, that, you know, and I, I didn't listen to him a lot back then. Um, but I, you know, I remember, you know, hearing that album, somebody at somebody's house or whatever, and, and asked that question about the guitars. So it was the 1977 album, CSN, with the, that introduced that iconic uh, icon of the CSN laid over top of each other, which was actually uh, created by Phil Hartman, the late Phil Hartman, if I remember correctly. Really? Yep. But unless I'm getting my wires crossed, because it was definitely somebody who was one of the famous Saturday Night Live alumni actually came up with that logo. But anyway, um, that's the one that says Shadow Captain, See the Changes, uh, Cathedral, any, anything at all. And uh, In My Dreams, which are both two of my all-time favorite David Crosby songs, and particularly In My Dream, Stephen Stills, uh, acoustic lead guitar work on that. Uh, I think it's, you know, I've never heard another version of another live version of anything that I thought matched the original uh, for really tasty, subtle, interesting guitar work, which I loved back then. And um, which I think can lead us to the, the next influence that we have in common, and uh, which is Jackson Brown, um, but which for me really is David Lindley and his really tasteful, subtle, but wonderful sideman lead guitar on the For Every Man album, which was my first experience with Jackson Brown. And I had never heard the Eagles version of Take It Easy, so Jackson Brown's to me is the, I much prefer that with that sort of Bakersfield pedal steel on it and, and without the banjo and the sort of Eagles harmonies and how that segues at least back in the vinyl days actually uh, would segue right into that next song uh our lady of the well yeah our lady of the well and uh, again david lindley and jackson brown and with their two uh guitars in unison you know and and uh, or harmonies playing harmonies and stuff it's just uh just beautiful stuff and um the song that bonnie Raitt sings on uh, uh the times you've come um mm. With David Lindley's uh, acoustic lead work on that again, very subtle but just so just so enriching and and beautiful. Really, uh, a major influence on me as a guitar player. And and I know that he he used to say his main recording uh, guitar was a, a nineteen. Uh, he didn't say what he didn't specify what year it was, but it's a pre-war triple O twenty one. He just refers to it as one of the herringbone triple O twenty ones, meaning the herringbone uh, ring in the sound hole. So. I don't think it could be later than a 41 and they only started making them in the late 38, I think. So in that window and my uh, unofficial spoon Phillips signature model that was for sale at Maury's Music once upon a time, the reason it's in a vintage style 21 was in homage to David Lindley's vintage triple O 21. So tell me about you uh, getting turned on to Jackson. Well, before I go there, I do have to make an apology. I said the CSN album when I was quoting Southern Cross, and I'm completely wrong. It was Daylight Again. So if you were in the comments and you're you're ready to punch me in the face, delete your comment because I corrected myself. <laughs> I don't know how I got that wrong. Well, yeah, Daylight Again, <laughs> speaking of that, that's one of my least favorite album covers of all time with the really goofy-looking three flying saucers <laughs> and some, you know, mountainous planet. But boy, what a great record that is. Yeah, we'll go back to that in a moment because uh, I don't think you and I could could talk enough about those guys. But yeah, Southern Cross, that is, uh, and I didn't know at the time that was at the very depths of David Crosby's freebasing drug issues and all that and how he basically 
uh, was a non-entity, but even though his two songs on that record, Have a Good Time and Delta, are absolutely beautiful songs, he basically just came in and sang on them. You know, he didn't play anything. He didn't, though he actually knows how to play Delta, you know, learn to play the piano to play Delta and stuff. But I didn't know until years later that he was in such a horrible condition at that time. But yeah, really great. Uh, there's some really, really great stuff on there. Oh, yeah. And a matter of fact, I remember reading some articles where uh, Stills and Nash approached a record company just to do that record together. No way, you're not going to do a Stills and Nash record. It's got to be Crosby, too. And I know a ton of guest artists are all over that record, including Timothy B. Schmidt, Art Garfunkel. And I'd, I'd love to see the real liner notes to see who sang on what. But yeah. Rick Dorgy is on there, I think. But um, yeah. I think Rick Dorgy plays the piano on the, for the David Crosby song. I'm pretty sure Crosby was a part-timer for sure on that session. If he did if he did anything more than sing, I'd be surprised, like you yeah, said. Yeah, I don't even think, from what I remember read in later interviews, I don't even think he was involved and he came in basically after it was done and just sang his stuff. And, you know, and they even were going to erase, he did, he did some early vocals and they were going to just erase it, I think, and, you know, go on their own. But, but thankfully they did not. And I agree, I have to say, you know, as particularly when I was that young, um, it, may, it would have made a huge difference to me if he wasn't involved. And, you know, I could see people would not go, you know, they wouldn't have uh, wanted to go see the tours nearly as much, you know, all that stuff to not have the three-part harmonies. And we take that for granted. Everybody's maybe sick to death of hearing Sweet Judy Blue Eyes and those songs on classic rock radio. But it really took the world by storm and blew people away. Uh, when they do Help Us Hoping at Woodstock, which... For some unknown reason, didn't make the Woodstock soundtrack or the or the movie, that kind of stuff live again with one mic or or uh, you don't have to cry. It you know it just gave uh, people uh, goose flesh and 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 this was right after you know a decade of two part harmony. It was a decade of the Everly Brothers influencing Graham Nash and I wish I could think of his partner's name and the Hollies, the two part harmonies. And that's a great story in Graham Nash's autobiography, which I only read recently. I didn't know they were, you know, grew up worshiping the Everly Brothers and as late, you know, teens ran into the Everly Brothers in Manchester, you know, just by accident and were encouraged by them to pursue their dream of being a singing star. And wow. led to, yeah, and really, uh, greatly influenced uh, Graham Nash and the Hollies, but also, um, the, you know, who are the other big uh, two harmony singers? Well, not just, not just two harmony singers, but mainly that which is, of course, Lennon and McCartney with, and then you, they would get into the Beatles, would get into the three-part harmony as well, but the Lennon and McCartney joining into that one voice sound. Um, and of course, here's a, we'll go back to Jackson Brown in a minute because let's go stay in the 60s for a second and, and go with, Another a major influence on both of us, which is Simon and Garfunkel, speaking oh. of two-part harmony. Speaking of that and the Everly Brothers, I got to see Simon and Garfunkel in Wilkes-Barre with the Everly Brothers opening up, and it was crazy. Heavens, I had no idea. Well, congratulations. I, I've never, yeah, I never saw uh, Paul Simon live or, uh, or with or without Art Garfunkel. But yeah, and I didn't even realize, you know, I, that's one of those acts that I never even realized was an influence on me because I wasn't playing guitar when they were out and they were big and my sister had all their records, but bookends. And then the early uh, early Paul Simon stuff, his the 
what I call his first solo album. I know, I know some people will say, no, his first solo album was such and such back in the, but that was like before Simon and Garfunkel. So the, we're huge. I'm just talking about the one that has me and Julio down by this schoolyard and the mother and child reunion and Duncan, that was a huge influence on me. And again, about the sound of acoustic guitars and, and finger picking guitar players. And, but the two part harmonies of Simon Garfunkel and Paul Simon's writing, um, Again, uh, Martin Guitar, didn't realize it was a Martin Guitar. Paul Simon played a D18 on the early uh, albums. And, um, and we have a, a podcast uh, dedicated to the D18. So people keep an eye out for that That's uh, um, when you have time to seek it out. And then he changed uh, to uh, Guilds and his black uh, Yamaha. A lot of Americans don't realize that high-end Yamahas are, can be really excellent guitars. Uh, John Denver played one, but they were not generally available for sale in the United States. They 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 stayed in the uh, sort of beginner market in the United States. But that Yamaha, he usually plays in Nashville tuning, which is higher up uh, when he's playing a concert. And of course, Paul Simon's main acoustic guitar for decades now has been his OM42 signature model, which is basically an OM42 with his signature on it and a... Uh, a neck that was uh, created for him. It's got a 111/16 inch nut, but I believe it has a two and a quarter inch width at the 12th fret. And the shape of the neck was actually in, um, taken from a very specific guitar that might actually be a non-Martin. I don't remember, but the uh, the shape of his neck. I don't know if the actual signature model has his actual hand-carved neck shape or not. That'd be actually an interesting trivia question. I should ask Dick that and see if he knows the answer to that. <laughs> so I don't know how many people listening to us know Dick Bark's uh, favorite Paul Simon story. So I'm going to steal his thunder and, and tell it. Um, <laughs> so Dick Bark, starting with the Eric Clapton models, um, the beginning of Martin making artist signature models where the artist got one guitar. This is the first time ever Martin ever gave away guitars to celebrities. They got one guitar and the option to buy more and a, a portion of the sale of all their of all the signature models that they make goes to a charity of the artist. And I don't remember Paul Simon's charity anymore. But um, Dick Boak was very excited. And I don't remember if this was in New York or if it was in London or where he had to go. He had to travel somewhere, maybe it's LA, to give bring Paul Simon his signature model which he was seeing for the very first time. Paul Simon, they had not met the, Paul Simon had no hands-on, hands-on dealing with this. It was all done through the telephone and, and mail or email. So Dick Boak is waiting, it's been waiting, and he's sitting in a, uh, like a conference room at, the, at a record company or music studio with the case open and the OM42PS sitting there. And he's waiting and waiting and waiting, and then the door knob turns and the door barely opens and Paul Simon sticks his head in, looks at Dick, looks at the guitar, looks back at Dick and says, I don't think so, and shut the door. <laughs> and Paul Simon's got a reputation for not being the nicest guy. And uh, and so Dick, Dick was just like, <laughs> just, you know, his heart just dropped into his shoes and then Paul Simon opened the door and was laughing and it was all just a big joke. But uh, I always loved that story. I could just see Paul Simon doing that. I don't think so. So yeah, so uh, so Simon Garfunkel, 
Coach Delson Nash, and then we were up at Jackson Brown, and I was about to ask you about Jackson Brown and your your early Jackson Brown epiphany. Well, I don't mean to keep kicking the can down the road, but I do have one little attachment to that Paul Simon idea. You guys are listening to Martin's and More podcast with Spoon Phillips. This is about Martin's and More. Nothing made me want to play an ovation balladeer so badly as watching <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel and the concert in Central Park. I got so attached to finger style music and finger picking and so emotionally attached to Paul Simon. And this was so many years before I understood that it was the Martin sound that I wanted. My early adoption of loving what Paul Simon sounded like completely revolved around the VHS cassette of concert in Central Park that I played billions and billions of times. All that made me want to do was get an ovation, a black balladeer, whatever guitar he had. It was it was the love for what I was seeing, but so far ahead of the path I in, ended up landing on loving Martin guitars. So my introduction to that kind of sound was long before my introduction to wanting to hear Martin's. And I just thought it'd be a little bit of a, a funny anecdote to throw in there. I did not fall into the Paul Simon rabbit hole with Martin uh, front and center, it was it was ovation. Well, I actually am not surprised, but it's funny because I'd actually forgotten he was playing that then. Uh, I didn't have uh, HBO back then, and uh, but I certainly knew several people who did, so I got to see that, you know, and, and in those days, HBO would play the same thing over and over and over and over and over. And, um, and yeah, and I loved it, though. I, even then, I was I never liked the sound of electrified acoustic guitars. And the reason he played ovations and the reason everybody else played ovations at that time was, wasn't because David Cassidy played it on the Partridge family. Uh, it was because <laughs> <laughs> I know that's surprising to some people. Speaking of influences. <laughs> ah, Susan Day, but that's another conversation altogether. Um, um, it was uh, <laughs> The reason everybody played ovations was because it was the first time you could plug in into an acoustic guitar with an electronic pickup that wasn't in the sound hole and that didn't feed back in giant arenas and in, or even in small you know venues. And it was because that that back, that fiberglass back or whatever it's made out of, which was literally uh, a piece that was on military helicopters. The, the factory, I think it's in upstate New York, where they made them had been a helicopter factory. And they used some of the machines, and I'm pretty sure the shape, at least of their prototypes, was taken directly from some kind of mold that was a piece of a helicopter. And, uh, and somebody said, that looks kind of like a guitar body. But because it wasn't a wooden back and sides, it did not have the resonance issues that you got from particularly from Martins and uh, who are, which you know has such intricate and subtle uh, harmonic body resonance stuff. So that's why everybody played ovations. And then Takamini, the uh, which I've always called it Takamini. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure that's the Japanese pronunciation. Then they basically usurped the ovations. Not for everybody, of course. Um, Miss Melissa Etheridge still plays her ovations. They then also were able to come up with an onboard acoustic guitar pickup that at least sounded something like an acoustic guitar. Of course, then that, you know, the, then that they exploded and now we can, you can put an acoustic guitar pickup of all kinds, different brands, all kinds of different brands in your, in whatever acoustic guitar you want. But that's why they, you know, and Jim Croce also speaking of influence of Jim Croce, um, which I'm going to bring up in a little bit too, you know, they play ovations 
or at least he did on you know in concert because because it was plug and play didn't matter how big the venue was and that's why they used him so jackson brown and Maury, I realize that Maury's man crush and Jackson Brown's a little embarrassing because, you know, he gets wistful <laughs> and, you know, he blushes a little bit. Uh, I know if you guys, the last time you saw, you know, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, but if you picture, you know, uh, Dopey blushing, you know, Jackson Brown, Maury, there's a picture of him on his wall meeting Jackson Brown and he's got that same look, you know, so anyway. <laughs> Not the only time I've been associated with Dopey, I'll say that right now. <laughs> Yeah, Jackson Brown, I, I'll tell you what, the uh, the CSN thing was certainly a gateway drug uh, to the Jackson Brown sound, and I'm not exactly sure how to pinpoint it, but I, I distinctly remember, I, I was working as a cameraman at Channel 13, this must have been in the early 90s, right out of school, and I, I don't often remember hearing specific things for the first time, but I'll never forget hearing Doctor My Eyes in the company car that I was in, not, not that I... When I say that, it wasn't like I had a company car, but they would send the cameraman out on assignment and you just take, you know, whatever's there in the parking lot. You didn't drive your own. I remember turning on that radio and I heard the combination of congas and Jackson's voice and what I thought sounded like CSN harmonies and piano and lead guitar. And it was the mixture of these instruments that sounded so new to me. It was ballsier than like Sweet Judo Blue Eyes. It wasn't just acoustic driven. It had a really percussive piano in it but it still had acoustic sensibilities. It had a great lead guitar part, and the choruses sounded like I was hearing CSN, and of course, later I'd find out I was hearing C, because David Crosby was singing <laughs> the harmonies. I'll never forget what that sounded like, and I immediately, uh, in 1992-ish, I didn't have any way of going and diving into things like you can now, but I remember wanting to hear more and more, and I think the very first record, or a track or cassette, but probably a CD, uh, that I heard from Jackson Brown must have been his first record or the second record. And that was, it was pretty telling. As soon as I discovered whichever one of those it was, the barn doors just blew open. And I was an instant fan of really everything I was hearing from him. I could go in and hear a lot of comparisons to James Taylor. It uh, Certainly the, the CSN influence was there. And it felt like everybody who knew about Crosby, Sills, and Nash Half of those people knew about Jackson Brown, and I was late to the party, but as soon as I discovered that stuff, his voice just really resonated with me. And I think if I'm really being truthful, going back from the very first time I got interested in music in the mid-80s all up until now, certain influences take a hold of you for a certain amount of time. They might give way to something else, and as you get older, you know, we can talk about this list and, and find out which influence still influences you as much as something else and which ones influence you more. I think the Jackson Brown songwriting and discography probably has made the most influence on me going from when I first found it and it hasn't really slowed down. And it's, it's really something I connect with more than a lot of other music. He hasn't stuck around with me as much in terms of I haven't followed his career and his later records. Um, but he was certainly a major influence on me and David Lindley again, his lead guitar work. And I kind of broke up with Jackson Brown when David Lindley stopped appearing on his records. And, you know, I was young enough to, you know, kind of take offense to that. I think The Pretender was the first one where David was not the, uh, when Mr. Dave wasn't the main guy all, all over all the entire record and stuff. But it was the ones that came after that. The, um, what's the one on, uh, on the boulevard? Hold out. Hold out, thank you. Yeah, that's where it kind of really started and they went their separate ways. But um, I remember 
I guess a big influence on me was my older brother because he would borrow records. And that's the first time I heard the Grateful Dead. It was the Skeleton Roses album and, and uh, Working Man's Dead. And the first time I heard Jimi Hendrix and the first time I heard my brother at that time listened to like hardcore Southern African-American blues. So, you know, Lightning Hopkins and um, those kind of people. And so he would borrow records, but he was not that into them. But I would listen to him too, and you know, and, and heard various things, and and even though I didn't know who the artists were a lot of the times until much later, but um, for every man was he brought home, and that just immediately leaped into my spinal column, and I was telling every everybody I knew about Jackson Brown and and Take It Easy and you know all this stuff, and again I hadn't heard the Eagles Take It Easy. The first Eagle album I heard was uh, Desperado, and that had a big influence on me at that time too, speaking of harmonies and acoustic music. And um, I know Desperado again is one of those old chestnuts that gets played to death and there's even a Seinfeld episode about that. But I still think it's one of the great songs in the modern American songbook. But so that really, the, I, love, I think I love every song on that record. And as a kid seeing the probably the Don Kirshner rock concert of the video of Doolin Dalton's and Desperado, where they did this video of them as cowboys, you know, like like the James Younger gang or the or the Dalton gang, getting you know, and they get in a big shootout and they all get killed and all that. And uh, cameo appearance, one of the outlaws is Jackson Brown. So I thought that you know, if Jackson Brown was uh, in the Eagles video, then I they were okay with me. And then I started getting into the Eagles <laughs> and not realizing that he they used to live. He lived in the apartment above or below Glenn Fry, and uh, and you know, and was actually part of them. And they would they wrote you know, take it easy together and all that stuff. So it was always fascinating reading in Rolling Stone or whatever, and you started to learn about artists that you really found seriously influential. And then I've got I put a shout out for Maury Muehlheisen, who was Jim Croce's side man. Uh, my brother turned, yeah. me, turned me on to Jim Croce. I saw them uh, for maybe a quarter uh, at Bowling Green State University, which was just a half hour drive up from my hometown in Ohio. And then they were on Soundstage, which was a PBS show, I think out of Chicago. And it was, you know, as much as the songs were great, it was Buellheisen's lead guitar work. And he's also the guy that basically taught Croce how to play that way. And, and wow. you know, my whole family, in terms of the children, were decimated when they were killed in the plane crash. Truly very sad. So I'm going to jump back for a second about my uh, another two Jackson Brown stories real quick. One is uh, a very nice guy that I had met through the UMGF, the unofficial Martin Guitar Forum, and I'd only ever seen at, at Martin Fests, called me up out of the blue to say that he had tickets to see Jackson Brown at the Beacon Theater in <laughs> New York City the day after he was being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And it was a guy named Mari Rich who uh, was from this little town in the Panther Valley in Pennsylvania, somewhere out in coal country. <laughs> and so I met up with Mari and his mom and his sisters and his brother at uh, the Beacon Theater. It's the first time I'd ever gone to the Beacon. It was miserable, freezing rain, uh, slushy snow kind of weather. And Jackson Brown, he basically booked the Beacon because he wanted to celebrate his induction with his fans. And it's the first time I had seen him since um, 
So those were the days. So those are our younger influences. I mentioned Bob Dylan. I'll just say, before we go on and talk about bro broader influences that we have that still stick with us and some that don't, I would say um, Dylan was in my DNA. My mom had bought the Free Will and Bob Dylan, second album, uh, and listened to that apparently nonstop when I was too little to remember. And she also bought the Beatles' first album as an, an attempt to be uh, stay young and help. So they were always in my life, and, and much more so because of my older brother and sister. Bob Dylan is known mainly for playing Gibsons in his early records as the big old J-50 or, the, or a pre-war, maybe 1929, a Nick Lucas special that he toured with in the mid-60s. But those guitars, those Gibsons with that, that immediate thunk, dead thunk bass to them and the sort of jangly trebles that drop off and um, that he was known for. But the very first record I ever bought with my own money from Mowing Lawns was the concert for Bangladesh, mainly because there were a whole side of Bob Dylan playing live with George Harrison that that was his first appearance in public since his mysterious motorcycle accident. I remember when that happened, but it was, you know, he was out of the limelight for a couple of years, maybe even three years, I don't remember. You know, to be honest with you, I was young. I didn't really even know who Eric Clapton was. I didn't know really anybody else on the record except for George Harrison. Um, and I got to go see the movie at the drive-in with my brother and his friends, and and I listened to that forever, and Bob Dylan is playing a Martin D-28, uh, an Indian Rosewood, relatively new D-28 that apparently he borrowed from Pete Ham from the band uh, Badfinger, who were basically the house band for the concert. And then, even though he goes back and forth with Gibson's uh, and... Martin's, primarily J45's, um, some of the major seminal performances, really all of the major seminal performances of his life that I can think of, he's playing a Martin. He played a D41 on the Rolling Thunder tour, Rolling Thunder Review. He played a HD28, one of his custom HD28s, I think Engelman Top, at his 30th anniversary concert, uh, which I, a friend of mine, my roommate at the time, had a ticket to, but I was uh, directing plays in those days, and I had dress rehearsal that night, and I did not get to go. Um, so, oh. so, um, but I still have the entire show from again from I think from HBO on uh, cassette somewhere on a VHS cassette. It's probably disintegrated by now. And when he's when he you know played at the White House, he's he uh, was playing a D18. Uh, when I saw him in the Love and Theft tour, he was playing his custom black and white, uh, you know, negative Martin. Uh, people might oh, re yeah. might remember a D an HD twenty eight that was made uh, black as black and white for Acoustic Guitar Magazine as a giveaway, and Dylan saw it and said, "Can you guys make me one?" And but he had him do a double pickguard on it, and it has got a white fingerboard and and all that. So he was playing that, and he played that, I think, for all the domestic shows on that uh, on that tour, and then he played a J forty five in Europe on that tour, but um, but on and on, you know, he. Uh, he goes back and forth, but his uh, Martin playing, you know, was always an important part of my life. And going all the way back to all these people, I didn't know Paul Simon played a Martin guitar and the early cross, uh, early Simon Garfunkel. I didn't know Stephen Stills and Neil Young and David Crosby and at times Graham Nash were all playing D45s and that Neil Young plays a, you know, vintage D28 and, and they're both Stills and Young have played that, uh, owned a D28 that had 
aftermarket pearl on the fingerboard and all that stuff I learned much, much later in life. Uh, Leo Kotke, huge influence on me, the guy that made me want to be a finger picker. He uh, it would show up on television playing what turned out to be an MC-28, the early M's with their super deep cutaway in the oval sound hole. And he played one that had a sunburst top. Um, that was, you know, before he, uh, Bob Taylor, you know, made him his, his famous 12 string and he moved to Taylor's. Later years, uh, when one of his guitars broke on tour, he walked into a guitar store and played the guitars and walked out with a triple uh, 15 SM. And that, you know, but he told me, later on that uh, he all runs out of frets, you know, and I know what that's like uh, when it comes to 12 fret guitars. But yeah, so Martins have uh, shown up. Jerry Garcia uh, played D28, uh, I'm sorry, well, he played D28 and a D18, but the recordings of Ripple and Friend of the Devil and all that's a D18. I guess I could really go on and on with people who whose music influenced me and really taught me my brain to say this is what a acoustic guitar should sound like, and it's the it's the Martin sound. Um, well, now don't forget this isn't called Martin's with Spoon Phillips. It's Martin's and more. Let me ask you: give me a couple of important influences in your musical life that are not Martin related. Oh, absolutely. Um, David Bowie. Uh, it really wasn't until he died that I realized how his music was so woven into the fabric of my life across college parties. Uh, an early record that I bought on my own was I'd heard Space Oddity on the, re on, the, on the radio. And so I bought Space Oddity in a used record store in, down in Athens, Ohio, when my brother was either going down there for a college weekend to see it. And my d brother did spend his first year in college at Ohio University, where I ended up going years later. But um, Space Oddity. And by the way, I do believe on Hunky Dory, I'm pretty sure Nick Ronson's, uh, Nick Ronson is playing, uh, pretty sure Martin, he's playing a Martin on, uh, under Andy Warhol, speaking of again, <laughs> didn't know it was a Martin, but it's a Martin. Even when I ask you not to talk about Martin guitars, you cannot stop. Robbie Robertson, uh, huge, and, and Yorma Kalkinen. Uh, I would say my lead guitar playing as a musician, electrically, is Yorma Kalkin and Robbie Robertson. I think people would say I sounded most like them, even if I didn't intend to. But there, you know, there I'm talking about electric guitars. Um, the other big influences that I think you can appreciate very much too is Pink Floyd and Steely Dan. Um, mm. I was always like 10 years behind the times or five years behind the times compared to my friends. I was always kind of stuck in the past musically. Uh, still stuck in the Woodstock era today in a lot of ways, but uh, those were contemporary people. Uh, not exactly. I mean, I think Dark Side of the Moon's from, I think, 1969, but I certainly didn't hear it until probably 73. Jeff Baxter's, Skunk Baxter's work on the first three Steely Dan albums, huge, huge influence on me. Uh, again, preach, preach. When he left the band, when he left the band, I stopped listening to them. I'd hear them at parties, and it wasn't until later on that I kind of made up with them when you know, I really started to hear Dr. Wu and Larry Carlton on Don't Take Me Alive and um, Kid Charlemagne, all that stuff. But I think those are a couple of bands that you have listened to yourself. I was going to bring up Steely Dan if you didn't, and really, 
It's got nothing to do with my love for acoustic music, but if you go backwards and you ask me what bands were important to me when I first discovered them and have not gone away, I can't go a few weeks without putting some kind of Steely Dan, I want to say the word record, but you know I mean uh, MP4. or <laughs> I want to stream some Steely Dan all the time is what I mean in, in this uh, day and age. It's, it's so... Uh, Tim and I, Tim Perry and I talk about this all the time, how importantly bold and and gigantic that first Steely Dan record is. It, it just like leaks, like greasy, stingy <laughs> guitar. It's like in such a powerful way, like it just, it, it smacks you in the face. And, and that kind of thing, as much as I'll, I really appreciate a really heartfelt Jackson Brown tune or something from the most acoustic feeling uh, CSNY record when you know you listen to something from the first Steely Dan album I can completely forget about acoustic music for 15 minutes and not even care uh, that that still really does you know drive a lot of what I like and going on a complete 180 and you know talking in this part of the program about those influences that meant a lot to me that have nothing to do with Martins or more Iron Maiden is a name you probably weren't going to see on your part of this show. Being a 14-year-old kid and seeing that kind of stuff and understanding right away what guitar could sound like, its you can't trace that lineage towards anything I do these days. It, you wouldn't make the connection in any respect. But my going from not having any idea what music is to being shown that kind of stuff when you're an impressionable kid, uh, my first four, five, six years of wanting to play a guitar, that's what I was aiming for and hoping for and it was i'm sure i had an electric guitar many many years before i had my first acoustic guitar or my first interest in even you know caring what acoustic guitars were uh, I, I have a lot of people ask me all the time you know who do you recommend for guitar lessons and should you play acoustic guitar first or electric guitar first and you know that's a, a conversation for another time but it reminds me of how i learned electric guitar first and while i was delving into electric guitar and the things i loved if you would have asked me that second day, hey, I, I saw you just, you know, discovered electric guitar yesterday. Would you like to play acoustic instead? I would say, no way. It was so, <laughs> so not what I wanted to do in the beginning. And, and, you know, where it takes you in life is, you know, everybody's path is different. But I kind of laugh now about if you go backwards from 2022 to 2012, it would make sense to our listeners. And what was I listening in 2002? That makes some more sense. You go back to 1986, 85. Whoa, Nelly, was it different? That's interesting. Yeah, I actually never listened to a lot of the, what people today call hard rock or heavy metal stuff. And um, I guess the big, the big loud, uh, powerful electric guitar stuff for me was Dwayne Allman, uh, the, the Live at the Fillmore East uh, records, and Layla. I, I was in love with Layla for him much more than for Eric Clapton. And um, uh, David oh. David Gilmore with Pink Floyd, it's Carlos Santana, um, and um, and uh, still love you know his sound. And now, of course, nowadays he's a PRS guy, and so he's got that very signature sound. You know, every time you hear some pop star uh, with some vaguely Latin beat, you instantly recognize when Carlos Santana was paid a lot of money to come in and and probably lay down <laughs> his part in one take and walk out the door with his check and a cigar. But, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, he's one of those super gods uh, to me. I would say in the era that you're talking about, for me, it was uh, R.E.M. Uh, that's one of those bands that hmm. I completely got immersed in. And of course, that's my college years. And, and we knew, we all knew a girl, unfortunately, who uh, passed away a few, some years ago now, 
who was uh, grew up in Athens, Georgia. So she told us about REM before they ever got to up to Athens, Ohio, where I went to college. So yeah, I bought their first 10 albums, basically up until the first one after the drummer left. And But it wasn't really about the guitars per se, except I've always been guitar oriented and they, you know, they didn't use a lot of keyboards and stuff. Um, and I think Pete Buck and I really playing guitar in that same era, I would think people would have said my picking style was very similar to his. Again, more coincidentally, more zeitgeisty than, than anything else. That sort of uh, circular picking patterns that uh, he would do, I would do similarly. You know, I can't remember the last time I've listened to them. We're live at the Fillmore East, still in my rotation. It's still on my phone. And I kind of rediscovered uh, Pink Floyd. I rediscovered the Rolling Stones recently after uh, going through the wonderful audiobook of uh, Keith Richards' autobiography. And really, uh, it was never, they were never a big influence on me. Uh, you know, there was in those days, you were, you were either the Stones or the Beatles, and I was totally Beatle oriented. I really like uh, some girls, and I really like Shattered, and I really like Beast of Burden, and, and can appreciate those guys. But uh, what really blew me away is going back and, and listening in modern times to Can You Hear Me Knockin'? And what it would have been like mm -hmm. to have been in that studio to watch those two guitar players do what they did and capture that take with uh, some, of the, some of the coolest, most soulful, quasi-lead rhythm guitar that Keith Richards is doing, and then Mick Taylor coming in with the Les Paul and, uh, and uh, Richards just brilliant uh, rhythm and jazzy interwoven you know, background work all the way through Mick Taylor. Um, great headphone record, like when I'm out doing my fitness hikes, you know, in the, in the, hmm. in the woods in Prospect Park and stuff like that. Uh, that's, you know, very absorbing. And, uh, and I guess it sort of takes me away. It's one of those kind of songs. But All right, quick um, personal question. You have, you have to know, I'm going to ask you this when you're doing that, you're on your fitness walk in the park, and you've got that in your, in your headphones. Are you strutting like Mick? Um, not at all. I'm definitely <laughs> thinking much more like Keith. I'm much more into uh, Keith sort of uh, swagger stumble by that time, but uh, <laughs> stumbling swagger, okay. whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> I just asked the questions the listeners want to know, you know. Hey, man, you're the guy that fronts a band, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just remember uh, Keith's uh, statement in his autobiog autobiography when he said uh, they could always tell Charlie and him could always tell when Jagger's been to uh, visit a dance coach. He said, we've been playing behind that butt for, to, you know, 40 years. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> And by fronting a band, Spoon means I stand a little bit further away from the drummer than Jody does. And that's about all, all you could say but, there. But All right. I gotta, let's go with, let's just talk about uh, Shellshock Churchills. For, uh, for people who have never seen the Shellshock Churchills, I only got to see them in concert uh, post-COVID, uh, my first trip back to Pennsylvania. And, and I'm just so blown away by the Steely Dan stuff that you and Tim play. I mean, I've seen you play at a Martin Fest and stuff like that, but to play it with your band and keyboards and harmonies, and the Jackson Brown stuff, you know, and the running on empty stuff, but the Steely Dan stuff. And I've seen you do it with Dork, of course, with, you know, the your band of UMGF friends that get together, you know, once a year and hopefully we'll be able to again now that COVID's over. But seeing you again with your band, it's like the difference between watching World Cup soccer and seeing somebody like Christian Pulisic for the U.S. 
and then actually going and seeing him play with Chelsea, his professional club that he practices with for, you know, 12 months out of the year and plays 100 games a year with and the difference in the how it elevates the, you know, the, the quality of what you're seeing. And, and that's how I felt actually getting to see you finally play that stuff with your band, uh, you know, full blown electric guitars and amps and the whole thing really. Uh, really wonderful stuff. Really enviable. I I never learned how to play any of that steely dance stuff. I learned how to play really in the years when I was a kid. Speaking of their first record, um, which is not for people who don't know, that's not Skunk Baxter. That's Elliot Randall, a session guy, uh, who plays the lead on that song and on Kings. And um, mm. and but certainly one of the most iconic pieces of guitar, electric guitar work in the again in the modern American you know canon. Well, I would say a sincere thank you for that compliment, but I don't get the soccer reference, so I'll have to look that stuff up. Again, like watching the All-Star game in baseball versus watching a player with their team, the team that they play, you know, all the time and that they they have that uh, chemistry with and they can finish each other's musical sentences, if you will. Um, that's what I'm talking about in terms of the, from the pro athlete standpoint watching uh, versus... Uh, you know, I'm seeing a musician playing with the band that he's played with for years and rehearsed with. Um, you guys really nail that stuff. It's a Van Morrison stuff. Well, thank you. We really, really, we really appreciate being together on stage, and I'm glad it shows in some ways. Well, and the Van Morrison we haven't even talked about. He's another guy like David Bowie who has always been in my life. I think I think my older brother and sister were much more into him, and my brother can continue to buy his records for years and years. I think the last one I ever bought of his was was wavelength and that's goes back to the previous century but uh -huh. um but i you know into the mystic speaking of you know martin guitar player into the mystics again one of the one of the great great songs of our of our uh, time and um I, I was honored to be asked by a former roommate to play it at her wedding this spring so so oh. which i'm a little nervous about i need to talk to you about that because i know you know how to play it and uh <laughs> But there's not going to be sung. I, her grandmother's uh, is going to play mandolin, and she's going to. I'm hoping that I'm going to work up an arrangement with her, um, if she can make the wedding and all that, where she'll play all the melody stuff on the mandolin, and and nice. I'll play the guitar. But but anyway, who else? You know, you said Iron Maiden. At least you didn't say Motley Crue. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. To each their own. Um, I just, you know, those kind of bands, other than Pink Floyd, I never really got into. I uh, rediscovered re them, too, in recent years and went back and were listening to animals and, uh, you know, stuff I hadn't listened to in years. And what I... Oh, I love animals. You know, I was in that childish way where, you know, you're McCartney or Lennon. I was Roger Waters, uh, you know, during the, the breakup days of Pink Floyd. And, and to be reminded of what a amazing artist David Gilmore is. You know, um, his touch and his musical sense and and seeing him live in Gdansk from that tour, that video of him doing uh, uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, um, which starts out by himself and then the band comes in eventually and the big, you know, bass sax or baritone sax or whatever it is that gets it to bass sax. Uh, just, uh, you know, mag magnificent stuff. And his so like you talked about, uh, as we were starting to wrap up here, you talked going back to Southern Cross on uh, that, uh, that Stephen Stills record and his little guitar ditties at the end that uh, most people don't ever do. You know, just that little, those little licks. 
Well, for me, that you go to um, like David Gil Gilmore solos in Comfortably Numb, and what a uh, <laughs> transporting thing that is. And I get, you know, I, I get that. I get that from Stephen Stills and Neil Young in the four-way street version of Southern Man. Again, I think they, the world is very lucky that that got captured on tape because they were a jam band and every time they played the song, it was completely different. And they <laughs> click, they just, their solos, that's to me, is my, that's my all-time favorite guitar duel that has ever been recorded by anybody anywhere. And so, you know, it's funny how these things, they do influence us and they stay with us and um, inform us as musicians and give us, in your case, uh, something to aspire to and, uh, and oftentimes reach with the work that you and Tim do together. And for somebody like me, who's going to continue to be a jam band kind of person and never plays the same thing twice, gives me something to aspire to, to have that kind of chemistry uh, with people and uh, or as a, even as a solo artist. So I hope people have enjoyed this uh, podcast. I certainly enjoyed hearing uh, Maury's points of view when I would let him speak. Um, <laughs> and uh, is there anybody you've anybody we you still would like to include? Well, you brought up Van Morrison at the end there, and that's the one that I would have not wanted to go through the whole show, not representing. That's another influence that wasn't specifically acoustic, but his music's meant so much to me. And, and ironically, it's not a lot of his acoustic work that hits me the hardest, but just his catalog. I got to see him live at the Tower Theater maybe 15 years ago, and it was just like it was going to church. It, he was so, I, I guess, like finding his music and eventually waiting and waiting and waiting. And those of you guys listening know he doesn't just tour all the time everywhere. you got to watch and see carefully where he's going to be, especially, you know, in the U.S. When I had my opportunity, I had a lot of hopes and dreams on the line, and I was I was really hoping it wouldn't be a disappointment or I've, you know, am I going to get a good show? Am I going to get a bad show? He was just, just walked out and like knocked you over really. And probably a lot to do with, I wanted it to happen. So I just was in the moment, but besides Van Morrison, there, there really aren't a lot of other major influences that I failed to really, you know, list on, on today's program. We could go four more hours and, and get into the weeds, no doubt. But the only gripe I have it just bothered me a little bit, and, and you and I know each other for a long time. I feel like I can be honest with you on, on camera and on the microphone, and you won't be upset with me. Put my heart on my sleeve, and I said I love the Daylight Again album, and you laughed at how goofy and corny that album cover is. You are always talking about how neat it was when David Crosby, Graham Nash, Stephen Stills, and Neil Young went out and bought their first Martin D45s, and you're going to poke fun at when Crosby, Stills, and Nash bought their first Flying Saucers, and they wanted them on the cover. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, uh, you brought that up. I'll just say when it comes to influences that the two, uh, three musicians that I've seen the most of, and I'm not sure what order it is, is David Crosby, David Lindley, and Leo Kotke. But I'm pretty sure it's David Lindley and David Crosby. Um, one of those two is one, and one of those two is two, and I'm not sure who... Uh, who gets it? Because I saw Mr. Dave Soto a lot when he would come to do New York City and play in a small club with the, you know his rack of of Weizenborn style guitars and, and acoustic guitars, or he would be like with a percussionist. And then that, you know Crosby, I would try to see him just about any time he was in New York. I saw his very first show outside of Texas after he got out of jail here in New York. I remember waiting in line and looking way down the street as it was the. the People were waiting and saw uh, Graham Nash peeking around the corner 
And so I knew that he was going to be showing up later in the show, <laughs> which he did. And and when I first uh, sat down, the lights were going down. I something out of the corner of my eye and looked up. And as the lights were going down, they brought Eric Clapton in, and he was sitting in the, <gasps> in the corner in the first row of the balcony. Um, and he was uh, David's sponsor in those days, uh, substance abuse sponsor at that time. Wow. So that was very cool. And um, so here's something that maybe would be a good thing to end with. And it's kind of putting you on the spot. But let's say, to go back to Martin's again, um, is there a single song that you could point out as having a, uh, maybe not the most, but a very serious impact upon you um, either becoming a, a guitar player or loving the sound of an acoustic Martin guitar. Wow, that that could be two different answers. There, there certainly are those sounds, like records that really, like they capture that sound that you want as an acoustic guitar player. And independently, uh, just for sake of not being on the microphone three more hours, I'll probably say old friends from concert in central park and i know it's not a martin it's an electrified ovation but like what hit me over the head and made an impact and has never let go of its clutches it was old friends uh, on the concert in central park would be my my answer to that question that's amazing beautiful tune and of course it probably was a martin on the original recording of it. but that's great that's uh, i i'm i'm glad to know that as johnny carson used to say i did not know that about you. Um, now you've got to answer the same question. All right. Yeah, no, it's actually easy for me. I, I, without any question, the the answer to both of those is the uh, recording on Four-Way Street of Neil Young playing Cowgirl in the Sand on his, probably, uh, if I pride myself on knowing the sound differences of various Martin guitars, is his D45 relatively brand new. D45, Brazilian rosewood back and sides, and a European spruce top. And they call them German spruce back then, but this was during the Cold War, and uh, people are pretty sure it was not actually from Germany, just the dealer was from Germany. But more modern scholarship shows that there were people, and Martin may have been one of the people, that were actually getting real German spruce from East Germany against the law and it was being smuggled into the West. And it's possible, I don't know if, if uh, Fred Martin would have been party to that or not, but it definitely made it into America and there were definitely independent luthiers who were using genuine German spruce from, from East Germany. But anyway, I didn't mean to go on that tangent. Yeah, it's, it's Neil Young, uh, Cowgirl in the Sand, that the thumpy, uh, resonant thumpy bass of his chords and, and his minor chords and the just the uh, put a emotional hook in me at a very young age. Uh, I'm, I'm confused. Are you sure it's not this one? She'll be coming round the mountain. She'll be coming round the mountain. She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. Ah, you didn't tell me you were recording then, you rat. <laughs> <laughs> rat Fink, Rat Fink. You look up Rat Fink in the dictionary, you'll see a picture of Mari Rich. <laughs> Yes, these programs might only be an hour long to you, but there's always 20 minutes at the beginning that I get to keep. <laughs> Got to remember that. If you're ever lucky enough to get a video call from Maury at Maury's Music, don't talk in the beginning. <laughs> On that note... Well, Spoon, you know what the music means. It's time to go. 
From all of us at Maury's Music, thanks for listening. Smell you later. Let me say that much. Oh, I said smell you later. (laughs) (laughs) There's another outcome. Okay. Well, Spoon, you know what the music means. It's time to go. From all of us at Maury's Music, thanks for listening. Hear you later. This has been a presentation of Maury's Music, your trusted source for Martin and Blue Ridge guitars. Find us online at maurysmusic.com. Music.com.